When does a dance become a book? How does choreography lend itself to the page? What discontents exist in theorizing performance that are best explored through the written word? And how does one distill the hours of embodied practice into 100 or so pages of a tightly packaged and beautifully rendered text? It was the opportunity of a lifetime to interview the incomparable Bill T. Jones, a mainstay in the landscape of American modern dance and contemporary performance. A true Renaissance man, Jones will be familiar to listeners as a multi-talented artist who has shaped contemporary culture as a choreographer, dancer, theater director, and author. Creator of over 140 dance works for his own company and numerous commissions for others, Jones is a recipient of the coveted MacArthur Genius Award and was recognized for his multiple achievements in 2010 at the Kennedy Center Honors. Today, as artistic director of New York Live Arts, Jones leads this internationally recognized institution, known for its commitment to innovative artistry and the presentation of creative work that is shaped by contemporary issues. His most recent book, Storytime, The Life of an Idea, chronicles a series of multimedia lectures he delivered at the invitation of Princeton University as part of their Toni Morrison lecture series. The book is part text and part art object, including photos and quotations from other artists, including Bill's mentor, American composer John Cage. A recipient of the National Medal of the Arts, the country's highest honor for achievement in the arts, Jones crafted this book as a means by which to consider the challenges, demands, rewards, and sacrifices that have shaped his career for the last three decades. All right. Well, on behalf of the New Books Network Dance Channel, I am thrilled today to have the opportunity to speak with none other than the incomparable Mr. Bill T. Jones. Mr. Jones, on behalf of the Dance Channel, thank you so much for taking some time out of your very busy schedule to talk to us today about this beautiful book, Storytime, The Life of an Idea. Oh, it's my pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. This is, you know, I just want to say, you know, as someone who has followed your career at least as long as I've been alive, to talk to you at this point in your um, phenomenal and illustrious career is just amazing. I'm going to have to call my mama later, but thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Well, what what do you want to talk about? What, what about Well, I did. I did notice that in the preface to Storytime, you described the book as being conflicted, as a performance yearning to be a book, yearning to be a document. So I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could tell us, as far as you're concerned, who is the ideal audience for the book, or who is this book for? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I... I'm, I'm sorry if I tend to get discursive, but it's a wonderful question, and I'll do my best. Um, yeah. I was thinking of just saying to some people last night, I, I did a talk with Gloria Steinem at the Strand Bookstore about it, and it was an audience of people who I think had a, they were interested in my work. I was interested in Gloria. But they were also people who were interested in activism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they, and, and I don't think a lot, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I, some people didn't really know who John Cage was. Some people didn't know the art historical uh, conversation that's going on in this work, this for the stage and in the book. And so I think maybe an ideal audience would be someone that 
They are really uh, socially engaged. They love mm-hmm. art, particularly the, the discourse around uh, the meaning in art as it changed over the late 20th century and now into the 21st century. Uh, and right. they are adventurous. That's what that's the people I would like to have come to it. Um, of course, it would be great if we could also people who do public policy and people who are trying to understand that place that already exists in certain uh, social struggles. You know, the, the, in this book, I'm a in this book, I, an artist who's been pretty tried to be very free about my definition is now defining myself as a black artist, talking to a historic white artist. That Mm -hmm. is intentionally provocative. That's not necessarily Mm -hmm. the way I live, but I think it's a very important discussion to be having at this time in our country when we're trying to get to the bottom of certain issues around around identity and race. So I think those persons would also be part of my uh, uh, ideal audience. Of course, they'd have to Mm -hmm. bone up on what we mean by chance procedure. They'd have to know something about the choreographer versus company, composer versus compo- uh, uh, choreographer. They'd have to know something about modern dance and modern uh, music as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have to say, it sort of feels like kismet to be having this conversation. I want to admit that I was up mm, all last night after the announcement regarding the issues in Ferguson. And so Mm. for you to, you know, tie this, your response to the question to folks who are interested in that kind of relationship around art, activism, identity, politics, and policy is especially right right now. Yes, it is. And it is. And the work, story time, and I think the book, Mm -hmm. definitely the work is very challenging because, you're sitting there, and sometimes you're watching what appears to be a stage full of abstraction. But the story can be very, very piquant, very, very pointed towards some of the issues you just mentioned, which is the real experience, what you're hearing or what you're seeing. For me, the choreographer, I'm looking for some sort of a magical fusion wherein that those ideas about identity and politics get um, mixed, matched, uh, subsumed, transformed by the abstraction that you see on stage. I really am a big booster for the individual being in touch with their perception and the role they play in creating the world. That is a democracy. So in wrestling with this work, I think I'm also talking about wrestling with these tough issues that we have now in the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know that the work is inspired by John Cage's Indeterminacy, where he, you know, has those 91-minute stories and the chance musical score. Um, it made me want to ask, you know, when I think about a book sort of by its nature, the book disrupts the chance structure that one would mm-hmm. find in the performance. And so mm-hmm. why choose to create the book at this time, because that's not something, you know, arguably that you had to do. So why choose to create this gorgeous, I mean, it's a beautiful book that, you know, in some ways documents the creation of the work, but it plays with the structure a bit. So I'm wondering about why a book, why now? Well, uh, one, the most honest answer would be I would, I would, would defer to the people there at the uh, Civil African American Studies and the Tony Morrison Lectures and the Princeton University Press. 
Because part of the condition around being invited to be a speaker on that series is that you will, the lectures will result in a book. Now, they have invited not a scholar, not an academic, but they've invited a working artist who happens to be a performing artist, a creator. So when I go in, what do, and I could talk about anything I wanted, I talked about the work that was really consuming me at that moment. And that work Mm -hmm. had to do with just your question. Um, therefore, I said the article, this thing that you're holding in your hand, is conflicted because mm-hmm. it, it wants to. Uh, I want to report or describe. I want to give evidence of an experience which is as fleeting as the thoughts flickering through our mind right now as we talk. That's the world mm-hmm. I live in as a performing arts person. But at the same token, I want to be part of a discourse. I want where people have ideas are put down so others can read these ideas and respond. I want to have a thing that will um, that will have maybe a different kind of permanence or another permanence than my dancers will. Uh, the dancers are gone after the performance. There's a video I was laying this, this morning in bed, uh, finally catching up on looking at the uh, five variations that we did last week at New York Live Arts on Storytime. Every <laughs> night was different. And I can't mm-hmm. see them because I'm on stage. Now today I was watching them. Uh, so I, uh, that is the nature of the medium I, I live in, watching these little shadows move about on my iPad, whereas the audience gets to be there in that moment. That moment is now history. So what is a book? A book can bridge that. A, br- a, br- a book can remind me of the gap between live performance and, um, and uh, the frozen word. But it can also be um, a marker that says there is something here. Come closer. Look. Think about it. Mm-hmm. To that point, I would ask then, can you share with our listeners any favorite parts of the book to which we might want to direct our attention? Or perhaps you might want to think of it as what you consider to be some of the distinguishing features of the text. <laughs> well, there's three parts. I would say in the first section, I um, the um, in the, the first section, which is called Fast Time, the first lecture, mm-hmm. the description of being mm-hmm. a 19-year-old um, uh, son of migrant workers from upstate New York, going to the university, one of the first in my family to do so, incidentally, and uh, just absorbing myself in the culture of thought at that time. I mean, avant-garde film, uh, dance poetry, anthropology, all of these things, and how did I end up at a concert of this esoteric, obscure New Yorker, John Cage, who was up there, not in the theater, but in a, in a common room. That, I think, says a lot about the time that, um, that has shaped me, but also something about what it means to be young and open. That's interesting. I think in the second section, which is called uh, Story Time, which is a, was, in fact, a lecture that was, in fact, a mini performance of the piece, minus the dancers, but with my companion Bjorn Amelon uh, uh, drawing instead, there are certain stories. Uh, there are stories that tell about uh, the first night I met John Cage and how uh, Betty Freeman, a wonderful com- uh, lover of the uh, music and who became my dear friend, is sitting next to him, and I'm sat between the two of them, and she tells John to tell a story. Now, John Cage is a famous storyteller, but before he could even get the story going, she said, no, no, not that one, the other one, John. 
And I uh, write in my story, which I think the readers might enjoy, I say after 35 years, I can't remember either story. And I wonder if audiences <laughs> feel that way walking out of my performance. And there are stories that have to do with uh, my mother looms large in this. My mother is a bridge to an African-American tradition that I, at that time, thought that I had to be free of. And I wanted to go to John Cage's church, which was the church of modernism. And I, my, my mother is always there, and she's with me now. Uh, she, in her very homespun, direct, and very black American Christian point of view, she presents a very um, a compelling counterpoint to John Cage's indeterminacy. She knows where God is. She knows what's good. She knows what's bad. And yet she has deep, deep questions about being alive. Those stories of Estella's are important. And in the last section, um, called With Time, as if with time passing, I try to um, come clean and say that John Cage was like my father, my grandfather. And you know how it is with your parents. You love them, but there's something about them, their, their lives, that you have to push against, that you have to uh, own up to or move away from. And I think that's a very important thing for a black man, a middle-aged black man, at the end of his life, as you said in your introduction, I've done a lot of things, to still be looking for a kind of a father and still be having mm-hmm. a fight. Um, I think those are three aspects of the book. Yeah, yeah. I will say, you know, when I read the book, two things sort of immediately spoke to me. I, I love the whole thing, but I really love the first section, and it's probably because my grandparents ended up in Buffalo, New York, from the Deep South. Um, <laughs> I spent all of I spent all of my growing up in Buffalo and went to the University of Buffalo. So, wow. you know, you being a, a SUNY Binghamton person, me being a University of Buffalo person, remembering what it was like to be 18, 19 years old at college, mm-hmm. exploring these ideas that were very yeah. different than the ideas I got in my very, you know, decidedly black <laughs> home and and, and wrestling with all that, it also really resonated with me because I know that that's the section I can teach to my, I can use with my undergraduates Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in terms of getting to think through their own histories Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. also in helping them articulate some of the traumas, and I'm using that word intentionally, that happen when we revisit those histories sometimes. Uh, very good. That's very be- beautifully put. Now, the only thing I would say for some of them to think about those histories, think about the trauma. There is a question, it used to be a question, what is black dance? And we, and, uh, and people thought about that. Many people felt that black dance was dance that reflected the trauma narrative of being black mm-hmm. in America. Now, I don't know if we're, I think we're a little bit more nuanced than that, but there's still people who think that the art should be serving a social justice uh, purpose. That even came up last night with Gloria, no surprise, right? But there, uh, but I, I, I take on, I take this in the third section and I say, because people labeled me an artiste engagé, the French call, an engaged artist, engaged in the world. The implication being that artists are not engaged in the world, but there are a few of us who are. 
Anyways, what does an artiste engagé think an artist is supposed to do? And as I've said in many other places, but particularly in that third section, which I would just draw your, te- your students' attention to, the idea that the artist should be the freest person in society, free from all definitions to tell them what they are. You know, uh, am I a woman? Am I a man? Am I a transgender? Am I black? Am I white? Am I Chinese? All those things, yes, are true on one level, but ultimately the artist is the ultimate decider as to what they are. And then what should that artist do? What should they do? Artist does, I say an artist does not have to do a damn thing. But that artist is a person, a man, a woman, with a location, a class, uh, a sexuality, sexual orientation. Uh, what does that person need and want to do? Well, this is connecting your and my biography from being these upstaters and coming from traditional black communities, going to university, and I'm sure it was there as well. Who am I? That question mm-hmm. is still with me after Kennedy Center Honor, MacArthur, Tony's, that question is still there. Who am I? I think that would be also an, an interesting connection for your students. Absolutely. And I have to say, in the interest of full disclosure, you know, in picking up the book and reading it and realizing that you were really wrestling with that question, you know there was this part of me that sort of hoped you were going to get there in the end and tell us so that (laughs) 35-year-old me would have answers too. But to look at the book and read it and realize that there's a wrestling, that there is a Dare I say, and I mean this with every ounce of respect, there are some anxieties that are still oh, yeah. present. Uh, mm-hmm. It was like, wow, this was really satisfying. But when I look at this man's biography and all of the ways that, you know, your career has influenced the way I even think about my own life, and I know that that's true for so many of our listeners, um, we I was really hoping you would have got there. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> Well, what what do you mean? You hope that I would finally figure out you what you were hoping I would finally figure out who I am, or finally get to the admitting that I'm wrestling with. What are you? What what are you? What were you hoping for? You were going to tie up the "Who am I?" question with neat little It was going to be neat and composed and as 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 just as clear as much as much of your choreography is, and we were going to be able to nail that thing down. And I should have known much better than that. Well, but it was well, an exciting prospect. Well, no, and, and I think that that is what people need to know about what it means to be a living, working artist. You never get there. Mm-hmm. That is part of the job description is that you're constantly turning this thing, this experience of being human and alive, turning it around and, and going at it with all of your formal chops and your big, strong heart. That's all you have. Um, the world may reward you. The world may slap you. But you're left with that, and I say, art does for me what religion traditionally did. It organizes a seemingly chaotic world. Mm-hmm. And that, that is all that um, every piece I make is trying to do. Just find a way to, how can I attack it now? Story time, with all of its uh, stories and points of view and the, the levels of discourse, is trying to present as honest a picture as possible of what that feels, and even looks like in the life of an artist like myself. Mm-hmm. It definitely achieves that. I would ask you then, what has been the biggest surprise, maybe, in terms of the response to the book for you? Mm. I think that the response, first of all, people sometimes want to separate the book from the 
event that it is inspired by. So they don't, they want to look at it as purely a literary uh, effort. And I say it's an artifact of a, of another process as well. That's been a surprise. Uh, that people have difficulty seeing it as an artifact. They want to see it. They want to read it for the story. They want to do what they, I guess, what they do with books. Um, that's been pretty surprising to me. <laughs> Can you share any particular challenges, perhaps, that you faced in developing the project and how you decided to meet them in order to bring it to fruition? Because given that it is an artifact of, of the lectures and in some ways um, the creation or process of making this piece, it could have been different. I mean, it could have been organized differently. It could have you know, taken a different shape. So were there any challenges mm-hmm. in terms of putting the project together? Well, there was. For instance, and if you're talking about the book, I had mm-hmm. the idea that the book was going to be this explosion of different fonts, different colors, um, because every time the voice, there's, there is a voice, for instance, that is the voice of the narrator writing the book. Then there's the voice mm-hmm. of the person who is giving a lecture. And that person who's giving a lecture may quote Maya Angelou, Morton Feldman, John Cage himself, Bob Dylan, what have you, uh, the Bible. And those voices were going to, I thought, were going to be completely in a different color. They're going to be a different font. Uh, Then there were going to be pictures strewn throughout the book that were going to be almost like um, watching a, a photo montage as you're listening to a lecture. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, some of them would be uh, in color, and some of them would be in black and white. Well, we do have all photos in the book. We do have some font changes, but there were there were, there were problems with budget. Literally, to make the mm-hmm. book that I wanted to make uh, would have been extremely time-consuming and extremely expensive uh, to have and to have that many different types of of stock and different types of of color and and fonts. Not to mention the photographs. Uh, existing throughout the book in this free-form way. So we had to make some compromises. A very, very uh, Maria Lindenfeller, I believe, is the name of our designer. And please correct that if, if I'm wrong. And Maria, if you're hearing this, please forgive me. She was fantastic. She was uh, the, um, the, the graphics designer who worked on the book. And we had meetings about it. At one point, it was going to be the size of a like a, a palm-sized book, a book that was going to fit into a palm, which I was never crazy about. But at least it was going to it was it was something we thought would be achievable. Then the question was, how big should it be, um, and should it have a picture on the front cover? I didn't, you know, I think it's a great picture, that picture of Timothy Greenfield Sanders of me. But um, I thought, well, isn't that? Shouldn't people discover me without having a picture on it? Should it be a picture of something that's like a, my garden or whatever? But they were saying that the picture puts a man's face on it. And I think it was important that it's a black man's face on it because, quite frankly, I believe that they were interested in making sure that this book finds its way into the hands of people of color. I never thought mm-hmm. my story was one purely of people of color, but they think that that's the, and I think they're wise, the people at Princeton University Press, really want to make sure that they do niche marketing, but they also make it available to people who wouldn't pick up a book unless they felt an association with the person who wrote it. So all of these were um, discussions and challenges, but as um, I feel it with time, it, it is just what it should be. It's quite, quite lovely. 
I would agree. I'm absolutely inclined to agree. My final question would be, you know, you've created over 100 original works. You have gotten all of these amazing awards, the Genius Fellowship, the Tony Awards. Your name is, you know, enshrined in the history of 20th and 21st century American modern dance. And so given the range of everything that you've done as an artist, as a choreographer, dancer, theater director, writer. I wonder at this point what might be next for you. Is there anything that you have in development or that you're working on now that might be of interest to our audience? Well, the audience should know that the phenomena of this person that you just described is like a tightrope. I have at least three identities that are all pulling all the time. One is I am artistic director of a very ambitious new entity called New York Live Arts, which is a, mm-hmm. a, a merger of Dance Theater Workshop, a historic dance theater workshop, place where I did my first New York performances back in the 70s, and uh, Bilty Jones on Exane Dance Company. We've merged. We're trying to uh, move to find and wait for this new organization. That takes a lot of time. There's also my company. It is like the child that Arnie Zane, my um, my co-founder and my companion, had. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Arnie gave me every opportunity to walk away from it, and I said, no, I'm going to keep it as a kind of a reminder to me about what a long-term commitment and a relationship could could be, like a, like a parent taking care of a child. Um, that means feeding it with new works. That means fundraising. Constantly, that means making sure that it is in good health on every level. Thank goodness for Janet Wong, who is my uh, artistic uh, associate artistic director, the first one the company's had since Arnie Zane's death in 1988. And then thirdly, there is the work in the commercial theater. I am, uh, at any one time, I'm involved in a number of projects, sometimes as director, sometimes as choreographer. Just so happens I'm now working on two works that, hopefully will find their way to Broadway, in the role of choreographer. There's another one I'm discussing, the role of director. So that in, that's an incredibly different world than the dance world. It's certainly different than writing a book. It is about producers. It is about large, large sums of money. It's about making something that is an entertainment, not something that's going to make you scratch your head like Storytime does, which I love, I think, in art. But something that people are going to trust and go put down an ever-increasing amount of money. This is very dismaying how expensive those shows are. But um, you, you, it is a gamble. As you're gambling all the way, you're giving everything you've got, the same amount of smarts and commitment that you give to a dance piece like Storytime, like Analogy, the new work that we're making. Um, uh, there's the same kind of integrity you have to bring to this um, commercial theater work. So all three of those things are going on all the time. And um, that is, it's a lot. It is my life. Well, I have to say, in hearing all of that, there's just a big part of my spirit that also wants to wish you some rest. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're very kind. In the midst, in the midst of all of that work, and know that if there's ever an opportunity for you to come back and chat with us at the Dance Channel, that you will always, always, always have a place here. Oh well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Bill T. Jones, author of Storytime: The Life of an Idea. 
published by Princeton University Press. The book is available now at local booksellers and online retailers. I'm Takia Nur Amin, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the New Books Network Dance Channel. Thanks for listening, and keep on reading.